some stories aim to show the harsh realities of the world, while others try to offer an escape to some faraway place. A rare few stories can do both, pulling no punches while still offering comfort. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, where we share our love for all things fantasy and discuss the broader speculative fiction industry. I'm your host, Travis Tippins. This week's interview is with author and podcaster Lauren Shippen. Her latest novel, Some Faraway Place, finishes the Trilogy of Bright Sessions books and releases September 28th. Lauren and I discuss the joys of fan fiction, the power of online communities, and how to craft an emotional story that readers can find comfort in. And now, on to the interview. Welcome to the Fantasy Inn, Lauren. It's great to have you here. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here. Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay, so just jumping right in, I always like to start off by asking people, can you remember what made you first fall in love with science fiction and fantasy? Ooh, I can, I think. Um, There were two books, um, slash one of them's a book series that really made me fall in love with fantasy when I was a kid. The first is The Phantom Tollbooth by Norton Jester, which is just like, just the best. And and it's one of those things that I think really made me love writing and like words because it has such a playfulness around words and around language and it's just it's so imaginative and and beautiful and then the the like true like high fantasy series that got me into fantasy um was the lost years of merlin by t.a Barron, which is a little known in the, in the grand scheme of like you know middle grade fantasy a, a little known series it's a five book series about merlin as like a young boy or, or i guess like a young teenager he's like 12, 13 at the beginning of the series, maybe like 16, 17 at the end of it. And it's him as Emrys, like this Welsh boy who is in this fire and he goes blind. And then he and his mother are run out of the town because the town thinks that she's a witch. And then he kind of ends up on this boat out to sea off the coast of Wales and ends up in this like magical land through the the mist called Fincaira. And it's kind of about Merlin, like coming into his own as like a wizard and and, um, is just so lovely and one of those books that that rooted itself so deeply into my brain that the first book that I ever actually like wrote I started writing this little or like that I half finished you know I wrote like 100 pages and then gave up um a little fantasy novel I started when I was like 13 and I found it a couple of years ago and looked back at it and I was like oh my god this is just Lost Years of Merlin fanfic I was just like re <laughs> redoing exactly the beats that T.A. Barron did and it, the exactly the type of characters in the world because you know I really wanted to emulate that thing so that's that's what made me love fantasy. And I think that the first thing that really got me into into sci-fi was probably the reboot of Battlestar Galactica. I've always been more of like a TV sci-fi person and a book fantasy person. Gotcha. You know, I might be similar. And I wonder if part of that's just because of the budget. It's easier to show a spaceship in sci-fi than it is to show like this imaginative landscape or something. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, so as someone with so, so many creative projects going on at any given time, especially a lot of them in the audio world, I'm curious, can you even listen to podcasts anymore without your brain going into work <laughs> mode? Um, yeah, it's funny. I definitely don't listen as much as I should. Um, I, I do try to stay on top of at least sort of what the audio fiction that people are buzzing about, you know, mm-hmm. are, but I definitely am, am so much of my listening time is dedicated to like post-production Get notes giving for the projects that I'm doing. And so then, yeah, when I, you know, actually have time to, to relax and, and listen to something for enjoyment, I, I usually will listen to like, 
you know, one of my nonfiction podcasts that I, that I enjoy or like news podcasts. Um, so when I actually do have the time and like the, the sort of emotional and, and mental energy to listen to a fiction podcast, I do try to just kind of like turn off the work part of my brain and turn off the producer side and just like let it wash over me as a listener. And I think I'm usually able to accomplish that because everyone is trying such different things in audio fiction that like, I just get to sort of be along for the ride and see how other people are doing it and learn from it, which is really nice. Yeah, that's great. I know I talked to a lot of authors and a large number of them were like, yeah, I wish I could read more fiction, but you know, it's just hard to turn off that like editorial part of me that's like, oh, I would have done this differently or something like that. Yeah. Well, I'm curious, like as somebody who interviews a lot of creators, like, do you ever find yourself like applying sort of like an interview editorial lens towards the media that you're consuming? Uh, in terms of like, uh, just like getting all this feedback from creators, do I use that towards now my media that I consume? Yeah. Okay. And like, are you like, as somebody who, who is thinking about, you know, creators and like questions to ask them and thinking about how they're building their things, if there's, if, yeah, you're sort of like seeing the seams in the, in the stories that you're consuming. Uh, I do feel like I do a lot of the times, especially when I, I'm reading kind of with that extra eye out, if I'm going to interview someone and I know that when I pick up their work, mm-hmm. um, otherwise, you know, I, I kind of try to do like what you're saying and just like turn off that part of my brain and just enjoy the ride. Uh, It's a lot more enjoyable, I feel like, for the most part when you can do that. Um, Definitely. Yeah, absolutely. Um, But yeah, so uh, going way back, kind of, I saw that uh, one of the ways you originally promoted the Bright Sessions uh, in the early, early days uh, was engaging in relevant online spaces, uh, Mm -hmm. kind of as a genuine community member rather than just, hey, like, I mean, in the book world, it's buy my book, buy my book. In the (laughs) podcast world, I assume it's listen to my show. Mm -hmm. Subscribe, Um, subscribe, subscribe. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Um, But yeah, I love that uh, genuine involvement in the community aspect. So how has your approach to promoting your work changed since then? Are there any differences or, I mean, is print versus audio different as well? Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely am still, I think, community-minded, but it, it it has really changed. And I think I'm I'm still figuring out exactly how I interact in those spaces and how I belong mm-hmm. in those spaces and the spaces that I no longer belong in. So, you know, I'm a person who has been a part of fandoms for, you know, 15 years. And like, I, I was always like kind of a lurker. Like I, I would like read a lot of fanfic, but never really read and published it or sorry, re- sure. wrote and published it, um, which I actually do do now, but nobody will get my AO3 name. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> no that, is, that is my, my private secret. Um, and yeah. And, and, you know, and I would like, I would look at fan art and reblog it and all that kind of stuff, but I wouldn't necessarily be like deeply involved in sort of the, 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 I would be a, a consumer of transformative works and not necessarily a maker of transformative works. But I have been on Tumblr for mm, 13 years, which is far longer than anybody should be on Tumblr. But it's weirdly enough come out to be my favorite social media after after all of this. And it's such a vibrant, wonderful space. And I love fanning out over the things that that I watch and read and listen to and enjoy and picking it apart and shipping characters and making predictions and, you know, having good faith arguments about, you know, what we think is going to happen or how we feel about a certain plot twist or whatever. And that's essentially how I approached promoting the Bright Sessions was like, oh, here are the things that I'm excited about within my own universe, you know, like getting to write complicated women in sci-fi, getting to write queer relationships in sci-fi, like getting to do these things. And certainly in 2015, like 
pretty much only existing in audio fiction and like was, was like even there, like kind of, you know, not as, as, as prevalent as it thankfully is now. And then engaging with people who, once the show got a little bit bigger, people would ask me questions around like, oh, well, what do you think, you know, these characters like favorite holidays are their favorite colors or, you know, their favorite food and answering all of those questions and really getting in, into it with, with, with fans around like how I perceived my own characters. And I think what's funny about that is like, once you sort of hit a certain level of people consuming your work, you as the creator sort of become anathema to the space that your fans are in. Like you, you don't really want to invade that space that much. And I think that like, I'd sort of passed a certain point of like, in the early days, the people I was interacting with about the Bright Sessions Online were people that like, sort of, I would almost have like a personal rapport with because there were so few of us, you know, hanging out and talking about the show. And now there, you know, I definitely noticed a turn sort of sometime in like season three or season four of the podcast two or three years ago around me sort of being like this outside person who exists somewhere far beyond the sphere of Tumblr. And like, I would see these posts on Tumblr and be like, no, I'm, I'm here. I'm reading this right now. Like, I'm not some like, you know, big like writer who like doesn't, you know, isn't aware of these things. And, and so I think I started to, to recognize that like I had sort of gone through the looking glass as it were in terms of like being a fan and then all of a sudden having a fandom, um, as, as somebody who was a fan. And so I think that the thing I've been navigating now is how to, like, I still have a personal, like personal professional Tumblr. I have like 900 Tumblrs, but like, <laughs> I've got like my Tumblr, the one that I've had for 13 years that nobody knows the name of. And that like, is that's like where I spend most of my time reblogging stuff. And like, it's sort of completely free of my own work and of my own, like, it's just like stuff that I like is think is funny. And that right. pretty much only my sister knows the name of, and like, you know, she'll look <laughs> and laugh at it. Um, but then on my like personal public one, um, my like Lauren Chip and Tumblr, I still like every couple of weeks or every couple of months going in and like finding the fan art that people have posted and reblogging it because it's like I want to both show my gratitude that people are making fan art and making fan fiction and all of these things. And then also like make sure that people see it because it's so incredible. And I, and I love that. And I want people to feel appreciated. But what I don't do is I don't engage in any kind of discussion anymore publicly about, about the thing. Um, you know, barring some like, you know, like clarifying questions or things that people are confused about, you know, things that like sort of are in the, in the canon and maybe like not as clear as they should be. Cause I was also learning how to write when I wrote the bright sessions. But the thing I do have is I have like a private discord that like through my podcast company, if you become like a member of the podcast company, you get a discord, um, you get an invite into the discord. And like, that's my space where it's like, I'll answer anything because it is a smaller space. And we sort of have this agreement where like, it's, you know, me and like a hundred plus people who have all been following my work for a while and kind of know how I want to operate. And I can kind of be blunt with them around, like, if they ask me a question of like, well, what do you think this character did in this particular instance? I'm like, okay, here's my head canon. And I mean that, like, it's not canon because it's not in the thing. So like, here's what I, here's how I view it. And then sometimes they'll be like, oh yeah, I don't like that. I'm going to ignore it. And I'm like, great. And then there's a sort of this like nice rapport that, um, cause I think I've also been on the side of fandoms where like, you know, the creator gets asked about fan fiction or something like that. And they're like, oh, I hate that. Or like, oh, those people shipping those two characters are disgusting. It's like, no, like you do whatever you want to do. Like I'm, I'm a fan. I, I live in fandom spaces. I don't, I don't have any illusions that like this thing that I created is mine. Like it's not mine. If it, if it, if I wanted to keep it mine, I would have never released it. So, but I think the thing I'm having a challenge with now, like I, I, I've sort of settled into this nice thing where it's like, I can sort of be the, 
slightly detached creator who then will still like tweet relatable things about fandom unrelated to the stuff that I create online and then sort of in this more private discord space can still be the like creator that kind of engages in a fan space because it's siloed into this discord. Whereas like the fans that want to talk about the thing without me can do so on Tumblr or like there's a fan discord that has way more people than like the discord that I'm in. Um, And because like, I don't, I don't think that I have any right to those spaces. Like I just don't. I think the challenge now becomes like, I have a couple of new originals coming out in the next like year or so. And I'm hoping some of the Bright Sessions audience will port over, but like, I'm going to kind of having to be start from ground zero on it. And it's like, how do I now go in as a creator who has this established thing, but is trying to now create a new fandom? Like, I I don't really quite know how to approach that element of it yet, I think. Yeah, well, hopefully to a certain extent, I mean, the atypical artist's umbrella, it's not all like the same world or the exact same show. So hopefully maybe you have some followers who are into that brand, or I guess I'm assuming that that's what these originals are being produced under. I don't know if it's outside of that. Okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And yeah, that is exactly the hope and and still having that discord, because it's an atypical discord as a place to discuss all of the shows, but still wanting to bring in like a new new audience um, is just something I'm going to have to kind of wing it on i think yeah yeah and i love what you're saying about creator spaces and fan spaces and everything as well i think a big thing with discord and similar communities is both the creators and the fans can kind of opt into that discussion it's not like oh someone is like invading the other person's space or dragging them in involuntarily yeah and this is something that I was, I was sort of talking about on Twitter the other day and I saw a lot of discourse around like, I'm a huge Marvel fan and like, and, um, I've, I've loved all the TV shows and stuff. And, you know, someone asked Anthony Mackie about how he felt about, you know, people shipping Bucky and Sam and, and his, his answer was sort of like, I, I think, I, you know, I think he like navigated it the best he could, but the only thing I took away from that interview was like, stop asking these questions. It doesn't matter. Like, because then all it does is it makes, it puts that actor in an uncomfortable position where they either have to endorse something that like, maybe the creators of that thing don't want to take the direction. So they don't, then they'd be giving the fans false hope or some of the fans false hope. There's there's no way to win. Cause then it's like, if they say like, oh, I'm not into that personally for me, they're going to make those fans angry. And like, it's just, I wish that we would stop asking creators, writers, producers, actors about, you know, shipping or about fan fiction or about, or like showing them fan art in interviews, unless that person has explicitly said, like, I love to talk about this stuff because I think I know how to. Because right. for the most part, the people who create things, like, they're not necessarily from fandom spaces. And they're also certainly not from fandom spaces from the 21st century. You know, it's like, even <laughs> in my time in fandom, things have changed so immensely. And I think in some ways not entirely for the better. I think Twitter has been a sort of net negative on society overall and certainly fandom. (laughs) Yep. Twitter is not made for nuance of any kind. No, no. Um, But it's like, because I I think that, I think everybody is, I don't know, I'm sort of of the opinion, like everybody's opinion on the thing is valid. And that's one of the coolest things about art is that like the fan can have a a thing that they get from it. The creator had a thing that they intended with it and the actor or artist or whoever had a way to interpret it and communicate it to an audience. And the fact that all of those things might be different shouldn't be a bad thing or something yeah. to try to prevent. Like that to me is like the purpose. Like that is the purpose of art. And so it's it's so frustrating to me when I see 
creators trying to tell their fans how to interpret their art. And when I see fans trying to police each other about how to interpret a particular thing, mm-hmm. it's like, no, you, you all are missing the point. This is like, it should all, it should be different for everybody. And it's the points in which like you feel seen that is the beauty of art. And it doesn't matter if like you feel seen in a way that the creator didn't intend or like you don't feel seen in a way that the creator intended to, you know, have a certain group feel seen because like as long as a connection is occurring, that's why we're all doing this. Yeah. I think. Anyway, that's my grand philosophy about art. (laughs) (laughs) No, that's great. And I I think I agree entirely. As long as someone's not like engaging in a way where it's like actively harmful or bigoted or something like that, then like let people enjoy what they enjoy. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think there's absolutely like room for both like the, like let everybody have what they want to have philosophy and the discussion around things like Mm -hmm whitewashing characters in fan art or in film adaptations or whatever. It's like, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. And like, that is something that we should talk about because it, it speaks to a larger, you know, societal issue or like there's a certain type of, of, you know, villain discourse that occurs where if it's like, if the villain is like a, you know, skinny white boy with good hair, he'll sort of be loved by the fandom. Whereas if it's a man of color or any kind of woman, they're evil. And it's like, Yes, let everybody have their own interpretations, but also, like, can we have a good faith discussion around maybe some of the biases that we're all bringing to this particular work? I, yeah, I don't think that those two things are, like, mutually exclusive. Yeah, and I, I did notice also, since you mentioned Tumblr, that uh, your own version of that mumbler made its way into uh, some faraway place. So I imagine that was pretty fun to write about. It did. <laughs> yeah, so a funny thing about, like, yeah, some faraway place involves um, Tumblr and Reddit. And it was actually, it, they were, I don't know if I can say this. I, I think it, I think it's fine. Um, they were in, in all of the drafts until the very final one, Tumblr and Reddit. Okay. And then me and my editor had a discussion around like, cause we both love like Easter eggs, like fans can go find and stuff. And like, I had, you know, the, the, the profiles that or like the the spaces that are in the book do exist online in some capacity. Cause I, I okay. like, you know, I, I like sort of having that. And I made sure to like, you know, have not for all the Reddit usernames, those aren't all registered, but like to have like, you know, the Tumblr registered and the, and the Reddit, the subreddit registered uh, under like my control. But like as much as, as me and my editor both love those types of things, Ultimately, even though I have maybe those specific blog spaces, they're part of a larger ecosystem that we can't control. Mm-hmm. And so, and like, and are very like hackable and very, you know, um, um, sort of, yeah, we just don't have a lot of control over it. And so ultimately we decided like, the last thing we want to do is like send someone into a space from this book that, that 10 years from now will have been taken over and become very hostile. And we're sending them to a space that we no longer control. So we decided to do like mumbler and read it, um, Cause it's like kind of funny too, that they're like so close. And then also like for the fans that really still want to go seeking to the real world equivalents of those things, they might still find something there, but we've sort of given ourselves a little distance of safety of like, yeah, like if, you know, people start posting on the Reddit group and things that we can't control, like that's, we're not sending readers into like unsafe spaces. That's I think that the made that was the major concern. Right. Yeah. I, I really appreciate it. Cause I was wondering also I was reading it and I think you kept Instagram as Instagram, um, which I, I'm not a big Instagram user. I've never really figured it out. Um, but it feels like a less 
potentially toxic community than some of those other places. Yeah. And I think too, the difference with the Instagram mention is that like nobody's profile is mentioned, right? Like just the, pr- mm. just the, the platform is mentioned. And so you can't really go looking for something specific from the book into Instagram. Right. Um, whereas like with the Tumblr and Reddit equivalencies, there are usernames. And like, again, I don't control all those usernames. There are Tumblr URLs. And so it's like, if people go looking and it turns out that it's, you know, some sort of horrible, toxic person, like, I don't want that person to then be in my inbox being like, why did you send me to this place? Why would you put this Easter egg in? So it's like, so it's read it and it's mumbler because like those things don't exist. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, well, okay. So another thing I'm curious about, uh, since we have talked about like all of these new ideas, potentially new originals coming up, as much as I hate the, where do you get your ideas question, I'm curious about the <laughs> how do you develop your ideas question? Mm, Um, mm -hmm. So especially with like an umbrella, like atypical artists, how do you choose what needs to be added to that portfolio Um, or even pursuing a major collaborative project like Marvel's or Passenger List or something like that? Yeah, I mean, I I think on the the collaborative question, I think is probably like easiest to to answer first in the sense that like both Passenger List and and Stranger Things reached out to me. Like they were sort of from relationships that I was building in in the audio drama community and, and like larger entertainment community. And then like for Passenger List, like John had reached, John Dryden, the creator of Passenger List, brilliant, wonderful person, had reached out to me to write a script because he's always looking for like writers to, to write episodes. That that was the first season. That was, that was back in 2018, and I kind of just like talked my way into a co-producing, co-directing role because like <laughs> he sent me his outline. He does these incredibly detailed outlines for all of his seasons, which makes writing for his stuff like so smooth and wonderful. And I picked like an episode that I thought he was like pick an episode that resonates with you and, and that you want to take a crack at. And so I did that, and we hopped on Skype, and I like was like, here's the episode that I that I like. I love the the idea of this like psychic witch in this two person episode. Like this feels like my wheelhouse because I I read a lot of two person episodes. And then I was like, also, if you're open to it, I have a lot of other thoughts on the rest of the episodes. And he was like, yeah, like, what are your thoughts on the season overall? Cause he's so collaborative. And by the end of it, he was like, do you want to just come on and like co-produce it? And I was like, sure. That's amazing. <laughs> so that was really great. And then yeah, Stranger Things, um, just my contact over there knew that I was a fan and they were specifically looking for like a queer woman in audio fiction to like bring Robin's story to life in podcast form. And so that kind of really came. And then like, I came up with a couple of pitches based off the book that it, it is a companion podcast to. We kind of walked through that process and that was super, super fun. And then Marvel's, I basically, you know, like I really wanted to write a podcast for Marvel. And so I like kind of knocked on doors until somebody answered and said, yes, we're taking pitches for this thing. And so, um, and then, and then wrote like a, a long pitch and, and all of those have jumping off points. And so they're like a little bit easier to develop because you already have like a blueprint to, to work off of. And then when I think it comes to originals, yeah, a typical sort of made up of two things. It's like podcasts that are from other creators um, that I will sort of like oversee and provide a budget for and, and maybe like do various roles here and there, but mostly I'm just like an executive producer to make sure everything goes smoothly. And those are mostly chosen through the the process of, I haven't seen this particular thing before. This is like, it's either, it's either one of, of three things or a combination thereof. I haven't seen this particular thing before and I love the concept. This is easy to make and I love the concept or I love this person and I love <laughs> this concept. And so far, all of the like non-me shows we've done under Atypical have been sort of like a combination of all of those things. Like every, with the exception of Evan Strange Woods, which is a musical podcast we produced, 
every other show that we produced, Look Up, Life with Leo, and Greenhouse, were all from creators that I had known previously and who'd pitched me the shows. In Strange Woods came to me cold. I didn't know the creators before. They're fabulous people and people that I, I, I love working with now, but um, I didn't, I had no like prior knowledge of them, but they had a, a proof of concept pilot produced and I heard it and I was just like, yep, I have to make this. This is so good. Um, <laughs> and then for my own original works, I have just like a graveyard of ideas on my computer of like, you know, everything from like full season outlines, series outlines to like just single log lines. If I sort of write down every idea that pops into my head And I think that the ones that end up sort of becoming something are either the ones that like I pitch the log line to somebody who maybe could provide a budget for it. And then they're like, I like that. And then I build it out because, you know, I want to give them more information or they're things that like, I just can't stop thinking about. And then I just sort of develop them slowly. Like I have a gay cowboy love story that like I've been developing for three years. Um, and nobody wants to buy it. So nobody's like asked, you know, to see more to, so so they can decide if they want to pay for it, but it is something I want to make. And so it's like a big part of my development process is just like ruminating and just like thinking about the characters and thinking about the story. And like for, for the, the gay cowboy story, like I have like five playlists because I make playlists for all of my shows and you can always tell how long of a development period was based on how many playlists there are for the first season. <laughs> Cause like for the gay cowboy show, there are five playlists there's, and, and you know, there's no production release date for that. It's like, it's, it exists purely in my mind currently. Sure. Um, whereas for my next original, which is coming out, hopefully this, this, by the end of this year, Maxine miles, it's a YA mystery. And that was something that like, I pitched the long line and somebody liked it and, you know, built out the outline and developed it really quickly and then went into production on it pretty quickly too, that like there's three all half finished playlists, you know, it's like, it's like, it's not quite <laughs> there yet. Um, cause that is a huge part of my development process, which sounds funny, but like it, it works for me. Yeah. I love that. Um, and yeah, on the note of music, I, I do kind of have to blame you because, uh, in doing my research, I saw you're a big panic at the disco fan. And so that's all I've been huge. listening to for the past yes. few days. So. Yes. <laughs> yeah. I actually, um, bring in snow who plays Caleb in the podcast and read, um, half the audiobook for infinite noise and, and made look up. Like he's one of my like longtime collaborators slash best friends. He does, uh, he's done like, social media work for Dick Clark productions in the past. And he was working the, um, the Billboard Music Awards and actually got Brendan Urie to sign a copy of The Infinite oh. Noise for me. So I have like, I like cut out the title page and framed it. That's amazing. <laughs> it's I one of my that. most prized possessions. <laughs> Stay tuned for more after the break. Eyes Shut Studios presents Fenrir. So, you want to hear a story, do you? The name's Fenrir. And this is my Amir, Rowan. A breathtaking audio journey set in a mythical land. Frigo! No! God, it's full! <gasps> With unforgettable creatures. Harp walkers. They're enormous! And danger around every corner. Don't forget your history, boy. You are a Yomir. No, no, no. Rowan. Rowan. So it is true. You're up there. 
This is what we get for disturbing the balance. It is the light that blinds us. Rowan, I think we're gonna need it. To the darkest shadows, it creates. <laughs> Thank you, Fenrir. We were looking to make our exit. Fenrir, on all platforms including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addicts, and more. New episodes every 15th of the month. Okay, well, okay, so we've been talking about, in general, your work for a while now, but you're here specifically to talk about Some Faraway Place. Yes. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about the book? Absolutely. So Some Faraway Place is the final book in my Bright Sessions trilogy. And for those who are unfamiliar with the podcast, the Bright Sessions is about people with supernatural abilities called atypicals, um, hence my company name, um, who go to therapy. Like it's not them saving the world. It's not them being superheroes. It's them trying to figure out how to live with these abilities of mind reading, extreme empathy, you know, what have you. And each novel that I wrote within this universe follows a different character with a different ability and they're all coming of age stories. And so Some Far Away Place is about Rose Atkinson, who is 19 years old. She is part of an atypical family, which makes her kind of unique in the Bright Sessions universe in the sense that both of her parents and her older brother are all atypical. Her mom is psychic, her dad is telekinetic, and her brother is um, telepathic. And when we meet her in the book, she's 19. She just assumes that like she missed the atypical gene and she sort of now has to figure out how to exist in this family of superpowered people when she doesn't have one. And then lo and behold, late bloomer that she is, she all of a sudden starts to discover that she can go into people's dreams. And so it's about Rose being a dream diver, having this ability of being able to go into people's heads while they're sleeping and and, and explore their dream worlds. And about her trying to date this girl that she met who doesn't know about atypicals and sort of that conflict. And then also dealing with, you know, the changes in her family as as her and her brother are becoming adults and her parents are, you know, they're all kind of learning how to live with each other's abilities. And that's as much as I can say, I think, without spoiling too much. But a lot of uh, a lot of dreamscapes, a lot of um, teen angst, um, a lot of family sibling drama and yeah, these like little dips into the worlds of sort of um, social media. It, it's it's a the book is written in in sort of four different formats, um, and in two social media spaces being two of those formats. So my advanced reader copy, uh, I actually thought you were kind of breaking the fourth wall at some point because I think there's notes from like a couple of your editors back and forth about the oh layout God. design of the book. <laughs> that I was is like, wow, so this is funny. such an interesting move. I've never seen a writer do this before. Oh my God, that's hysterical. <laughs> Yeah, those arcs, you know, you never know what version kind of goes out. And, oh, yeah. And <laughs> yep. um, but yeah, I, I just love the title of Some Faraway Place because it's very thematically appropriate in like six different ways. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, was that title something that you had from the beginning or did you kind of like work in the other direction? It's so funny. It's the only title that I actually came up with out of the three books. Okay. <laughs> so I am absolutely garbage at coming up with titles. I'm so bad at it. It is not a strength. It takes me forever. I, then I went through about 30 titles before I landed on the Bright Sessions. And like now the Bright Sessions sounds like a good title because it's like established and, and you know, people know about it and people refer to it. But yeah, at the time it wasn't even, it's not really that strong of a title. 
But so, so the first book, we went through a bunch of different titles and then we were sort of talking about themes and sort of the fact that like Caleb, who's the, who's one of the protagonists of that book and is an empath is feeling all these feelings all the time. And like the noise of being around people with emotions. And so my agent, my book agent, Matthew Alblanc was like, what about the infinite noise? And I was like, oh, I love that. That's so evocative. Like it, it, it captures that feeling. And then in the second book, I was like, I nailed it. I know exactly what it's going to be. It's going to be called The Life and Death of Robert Gorham, which is not a good YA title at all. <laughs> it's <laughs> a very lit fit kind of title. <laughs> exactly. One of the things that we had talked about when coming up with the first title, because also it's a discussion with your publisher and with like, you know, what they think is going to sell, what they think is going to look good on the cover, all that stuff that like, especially with the first book I was so ignorant of. And one of the the bits of discussion and when we were coming up with the title for the first book was that names in YA title tend to do well. Like, you know, Simon versus the Homo Sapien Agenda, Dante and Aristotle discover the secrets of the universe, like that kind of stuff. And so for the second book, I was like, I'm going to do, I'm going to give them something they want right away. <laughs> the life and death of Robert Gorham. It, it's thematic because he goes through this trans, transformation from Robert into Damien. And it's, it's like a villain origin story. And they got back to me and they were like, yeah, it's too litfic. It's too like grown up. <laughs> and also like, we're not looking at the name thing anymore because what, now we're looking at a series and we want each title to sort of fit into a cadence. And there was like, so like, it would be great if it was another like article adjective noun, like the infinite noise. And so again, like, you know, um, me and my agent got hopped on the phone and I was like, I want to do something around neon because it's LA and there's a character called neon and like, you know, what is that? And so I came up with the neon darkness. And then I was like, I actually like a neon darkness better. So we did a neon darkness. So for the third one, I was like, all right, <laughs> I got it now. We're doing article adjective noun. And it was the in the first one and uh in the second one. And so I want to do something different. Some feels like a good place to start. Sure. And so, I, yeah, I just had, you know, like I, for a while in my head, it was just called Some Enchanted Evening, which is a song from South Pacific, <laughs> just because I was like, that fits the format. Yeah. Um, and so I started to think about like, okay, well, what are, what are the things that Rose is going through? She's exploring these new spaces. She is panicked about her future. Like, it, like as you said, like it sort of thematically works in about six different ways. And so I liked the idea of, of something far away, of, 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 you know, some far away something. And then I just decided, you know, place was sort of a simple way to complete it. And then another thing that your publisher always wants you to do, or at least mine does, is like make sure the title is like in there somewhere. Um, and so like, <laughs> I think The Infinite Noise, it got added to the book after the title was was made. And I had some abstraction of a neon darkness in the book and then sort of just like altered it a little bit after we settled on the title. For this one, I got it in there on the first draft. I was like, I know this now. I know how to do it. Yeah, I only use it, I only use it once. And I and I really like the sort of what it ended up being. But I mean, that is, yeah, a little insight into into publishing. That is sort of the weird, like multi-part thing you have to think about is because it's not just about having a title that's going to represent your book well or look good on a cover. It's also about having a title that is going to do well with marketing or fit within a series or, you know, what have you. So um, I feel really lucky that I've had really great people to sort of like usher me through this whole experience on both the agent and publisher side. Yeah. So before we move on, I do want to ask, because you did tease that, do you remember any of like the original ideas for the Bright Sessions? What was it almost titled? Yeah. Oh, man. Um... One of the really bad ones I came up with was special treatment, which is a terrible, <laughs> terrible pun. 
Um, and then I went through a lot of like, I went through a lot of like the something tapes, the something sessions, the something archives and like inevitably, like inevitably ended up using those because we did two spinoffs with the bright sessions, which are seasons six and seven of the podcast, which are the AM archives and the college tapes. So I did sort of end up using it, but yeah, I think, I think I went through sort of like all kinds of like different amalgamations of like strange, unusual, special, atypical, and then like treatment sessions, counseling, like trying to sort of like put together, like it's about special people in therapy. And then ultimately, like when I named Dr. Bright, I was like, well, what if it's just like the sort of the, the reason that we're hearing these recordings is because she's recording them. So what if it's like her archive kind of, and and her sessions that she's running, but yeah, there's some document on my computer somewhere of just like all 20 (laughs) awful titles. (laughs) Yeah. I love that. (laughs) Yeah, and uh, we also can't go on without mentioning that Rose's girlfriend is also a fanfic writer. Um, yes. <laughs> since you mentioned that you are, would I be correct in assuming that maybe you write about some Stucky fic? You know, you'd, th- you'd think that. I actually haven't written any Stucky fic. And I think it's okay. because like, so I've been a, a fanfic reader for, you know, 15 years and really only started actually writing it about five or six years ago. And I... At this point, I did end up publishing it like last year, and I can't really say what fandom it was for or what ship it was for because it will reveal instantly who I am. People could hunt you down. Yeah, because really, I I mean, the reason that I haven't written Stucky Fic is because like every possible Stucky Fic exists. You know, it's like I've read just like hundreds of, of Stucky fics. Um, and for those who who maybe are unaware, Stucky is uh, Steve Rogers and Bucky Barnes, the two characters from Captain America and the Avengers who are absolutely in love. Um, (laughs) And really the only fanfic that I've written is stuff that like I went to AO3, which is Archive of Our Own, which is like the big fanfic website and tried to find the fic after reading or watching the thing and it didn't exist. And then so it's like, well, I have to do everything myself around here. And you just like do it yourself because you're the only one who can. Um, So all of the fic that I've like written is for much more obscure stuff. And like, that's why I can't say what it's for, because I think I'm, I think in in one of my fandoms, there's probably like 120 fix in that pairing, you okay. know, so it's like it's not too, too obscure. Um, and then I have written a Bucky Barnes fic before, just like sort of a, a, a stream of consciousness, like, you know, um, uh, just his perspective type thing that like has some like light stucky references in it, but it's not really, Steve's not in it at all. But my main, the main thing that I've, I wrote for and that sort of got me into fan fiction writing is for a show where like, I literally went to the AO3 tab and there was like nothing for this pairing. Wow. And so I'm like, the, I'm pretty sure I'm the only writer. And it's like not a show that a lot of people watched anyway. So, um... Yeah, it'd be, it'd be too revealing. <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't even know that was possible. I thought there was like every possible pairing under the sun has been written. Yeah. I mean, I think there was there was like maybe one fic where it's like it was a side pairing or something, but there wasn't really any fics about them. And it was also a fandom in which there were maybe only like 400 fics total. So it wasn't like a okay. huge, yeah, huge thing to begin with. But there is a there is a lot of um, Bright Sessions fan fiction there now, which I haven't, I haven't actually like read any of it, um, yet. Cause I want it to be fully complete with all of my own original writing in the bright sessions before ever dipping my toe in there. But it, it's, it's sitting there waiting for me someday. <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, so your work is often described by people as like sort of this comfort food. Uh, mm. so what's your secret recipe for cooking up that fiction that just warms your heart? Oh, that's a great question. And I, and I love, I love that description. And I, I, I'm very flattered by it. Um, gosh, I think so much of, it's actually kind of dovetails nicely from the fanfic stuff because it's like, 
the reason that I write fanfic is to see the stuff that like I can't get elsewhere and to sort of write the stuff that I'm not getting either from the canon thing or from a fan fiction community. And I think it's sort of the same for writing my original work where it's like I'm writing the things that that I want to consume. And I think because I'm a person who really enjoys comfort food and really enjoys like certainly a lot of, a lot of the stuff I write is like, it deals with like dark and heavy things and like a lot of serious subject matter, but like, it's not hopeless and it's not like gritty. And I think that that's because I always want to give hope to my characters and to people and to myself. And so I think that like the biggest thing that I've learned, especially from writing Damien and in Neon Darkness and like, and, and sort of that whole process of writing this antagonist who is sort of complicated in the Bright Sessions and, and Wadsworth, too, who's another antagonist in The Bright Sessions. What I really learned from them, writing them and working with those actors, um, Charlie Ian and Alex Marshall Brown, I think it has really been applied to everything else, which is that, like, you have to treat all your characters with a great deal of empathy, even if they are behaving badly, even if they are cruel and antagonistic, you still have to treat them with empathy. And so I think that having deep love for all of my characters, even when they are terrible people, <laughs> is something that then translates into comfort food because it's not people doing evil for evil's sake. Like, I think that there's, you know, like there's enough of that in our world. Like I look at some of, I won't name any names, but like some politicians where I'm like, you're, you're like literally a comic book villain. Like, I don't even yeah. know what your own motivation for doing <laughs> this is other than like money and power and like but at this point, it's just evil. You're just doing it for evil's sake. And so I always want my characters to be like deeply, deeply flawed, but ultimately redeemable. And, it, you know, some of them don't choose to redeem themselves. And so they sort of stay villains forever. But that that doorway is sort of always being there, nobody ever being too late to redeem themselves. And I think just having that approach, even on the characters that begin as protagonists and begin as people that you want to root for, I think just really helps create something that makes people feel warm and fuzzy, even when you're talking about things like trauma and torture and experimentation and bigotry and like all of these things that atypicals deal with in, in, in the universe, because they're all just, I think, ultimately kind of trying whatever their version of the best is. Yeah, I love that. And especially uh, anything dealing with the Bright Sessions universe feels almost kind of like the opposite of something like, say, The Boys, where... Yeah. Yeah, yeah it, it feels more grounded and realistic than maybe some comic book superhero story, but also in a wholesome way. And yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head for me why uh, some of like the the big budget, like Hollywood movie producer type audio dramas don't always work for me because I don't think mm -hmm. that empathy for the characters is there. Yeah, I think there's there's a bit of a, because people see gold in the hills when it comes to fiction podcasting, I think that there's a certain degree of like, this is a good concept and these characters are interesting concepts, but they're not necessarily fleshed out into full people because ultimately the podcast is being made to be an IP pipeline into television. And it's sort of like, oh, well, they'll get fleshed out on TV. And it's like, well, no, it's never going to make it to TV if you don't have fleshed out characters on the ground floor. Like that's just not going to, you're not going to get an audience. And yeah, and I think that like The Boys is such a great example too, because like, I love the boys and it's, it is totally like the anti-bright sessions in a lot of ways. <laughs> and even in that, like there are some people in, in the boys who were just like, like, I mean, Homelander is just fucking evil, right? Like he's yep. just a douchebag. And like, and the whole thing with, um, in the second season with him and oh, gosh, what's her name? Stormfront. Stormfront. Yeah. yeah. And like that sort of that whole, like essentially, you know, QAnon alt-right, like just like arc that they went through was so compelling and so interesting. And you just like, you, 
you hated them so much. And it's sort of counterbalanced by the fact that like you have Butcher who is behaving just as like horribly sometimes in terms of just being like a murderous bastard as Homelander. But like you understand Butcher and you kind of understand where he's coming from and you understand yeah. why he's so angry and why he's he's so murderous. And I think that that's like, it, you have to like play within your own extremes, right? And so I think that like for the boys, you can have max max evil over here because even your protagonist is really violent and stuff and so if you can get your protagonist who's hyper violent and cruel to feel like a real human being then yeah you can go as extreme on the evil front as you want whereas like in the bright sessions it's like the you know people are doing evil things but within the bounds of like reality a little bit more than the boys is and so like you can't go as extreme on either end you kind of have to sit within that like grounded window Absolutely. And so I guess uh, potentially this is an inaccurate question, given that you said there might still be some uh, original writing in the Bright Sessions world left. How does it feel, at least for now, to be saying goodbye to the Bright Sessions world? Feels strange. And and yeah, I mean, like, I will say, just as the people listening to this don't, if they're fans of the Bright Sessions, don't get like excited. I'm like, oh, wait, is there going to be more? Like, no, there's <laughs> there's no plans to do more. Um, I always say, I always sort of like leave the the door slightly ajar just because like never say never, right? In like 20 years, yep. I might have just like a complete lightning bolt idea where it's like, I have to tell the story now about this character. And also, you know, like TV, film, whatever, there's always like other things to explore. But even like for a TV thing, it would be an adaptation of the podcast most likely. And so therefore, like, it, I don't really consider that, like, canon necessarily in the same way as, like, the podcast and the books are um, because they sort of supplement each other nicely. But it feels like a long time coming. Like, it feels like I've been working in this universe for my entire life. It's only been six years. Or, well, I guess seven because I really started writing it in 2014. But it feels, like, much, much longer because, I mean, my life has completely transformed in that time. But it also feels, like, really satisfying. Like, I think that... I really told the stories that I wanted to tell in this space. And like, it's not that there is like not opportunity to do more. Like, I think if I wanted to come up with another season of The Bright Sessions and pitch it out, I probably could get a budget for it because it is like a, you know, more well-known podcast and it has an established audience and like, you know, but I, I think I I really like where we left it. And I like where, I like what I said with it. And I think that there's a real danger and, and also a real allure to just adding on to your universe forever. And especially when it's like going well, and especially when like selling original, like truly original fiction, even if you're like already established somewhat is really, really hard for people to buy into a new idea. And it's really, really scary that like this YA mystery I have, Maxine Miles is technically going to be my first purely me original since I wrote The Bright Sessions. Because everything I've done since then has been either like you know, Passenger List, I'm a co-producer, it's an IP project like Marvel's or Stranger Things, or it's like a spinoff of The Bright Sessions. And so this is going to be my first real, like, original show. And, like, I know for most of the audience that is aware of my work, it's going to feel like the 100th Lauren Shippen podcast, and so it doesn't feel like a sophomore debut to them. Right. But to me, it's like, if people don't like this, I think I have to retire. Like, I think I have to, and I'm putting way too much pressure on it. Like, it's it's fine. But it's really tempting to then be like, well, then then maybe I will just kind of hang out in the Bright Sessions forever because people already like it and people already listen to it and read it. And wouldn't it be nice to just kind of stay in this comfort zone forever? But I think that that's how you kill something. I think that that's how I would destroy my own work, you know, is just by continuing to add to it to the point where it's like, I don't leave any room for fans. And it's kind of going back to that fan creator space. It's like, if you just absolutely write your universe to death, the fans have nothing to do. 
And that's not fun anymore. <laughs> and they and they go away because why would they hang out? At least the type of fans that like my work tends to garner. Obviously, like, you know, there's there's curative fans and transformative fans and curative fans who are interested in the stats and the and the world and the collecting and all that kind of stuff. Like the more that I think there's a degree of the more the better with with certain fans. But for transformative stuff, if you give too, too much and establish too many things, the transformative part, I think it becomes a little less interesting because it starts feeling like you're being fenced in, I think. Yeah. I've never heard that kind of breakdown between transformative and curative before, but I love that. I'm stealing it and I'm using that when I talk about fiction from now on. (laughs) Please do. It is not mine. It is. I think I first heard it from one of my favorite fandom scholars, Elizabeth Minkle, who's a a writer and podcaster who does a lot of stuff about, about fandom and Years and years ago, I I was I'm pretty sure it was it was Elizabeth. Um, something about sort of the interesting like gender divide that has existed in both of those things, like the fact that like curated fandom tends to be more male and and um, transformative fandom tends to be more female and non-binary and trans and and um, I think that that's you know sort of broken down in recent years as like the gender binary continues to break down, which is great. But it is it is fascinating. It's like, like fandom scholarship is something that I'm deeply interested in. <laughs> Yeah, I think I'm going to have to track down uh, some of their writing then and check that out. definitely do. Well, so I am curious. So uh, after branching out and now doing more than just the Bright Sessions, what do you hope fans think of or expect when they see your name attached to a project? Is there some kind of like Lauren Shippen brand that you hope immediately jumps to mind? Totally. Yeah, I love love that question. because it's a funny thing to like think about for yourself of like, mm-hmm. what do I embody? Like what, you know, what are the <laughs> things that I value? Um, I think that the, the thing that I would imagine people expect, and I think I, I hope people expect is something that is like character forward. You're not going to get like the most intricate, intricately, perfectly plotted out mystery, right? Like that's not what people are, are, are here for, for me. Um, that is an amazing skill set and like not one that I have. Like I, and it's something that with passenger list, I always like, you know, people will maybe try to attribute stuff to me and it's like, absolutely. Like I definitely was involved deeply in the project and I loved doing it, but like any cool plot stuff is absolutely 1000% John. (laughs) And then I come in and I'm like, well, what, what is this going to make the characters feel? Um, (laughs) Which, you know, it's like, ideally you have, you have a degree of both. Um, And so I think that, yeah, character forward stuff, emotional stuff, I hope that there's a degree of like, this is going to sound strange, but like sort of safe space-ery around it. Like, I think that, you know, um, there are absolutely things that I need to do better on and absolutely things that I will never be able to be perfect on because I have a limited perspective and things that like I am completely unaware of in terms of like, oh, I shouldn't have phrased it that way or I should have given a warning for this particular thing. Like there's always room for growth on that. And like, I think that something that we all need to be c- cognizant of is just like giving each other space to grow in those ways. And, and, and as long as we make efforts, you know, we're doing okay. But I think that something that I really try to, to focus on and something that actually my, my book editor, Allie Fisher is like incredible on is just like, just being aware at all times of like the ways in which you could potentially harm somebody with your work. And I think that, you know, like this is a discussion that I'm, I'm seeing a lot right now in like the publishing space and in the just like fiction space in general of sort of like 
certain strains of fandom not allowing for like any kind of like moral ambiguity. And that is a problem. Like I think that absolutely like, no, I want to keep writing people who are absolutely total fuck ups and who like you should not want to hang out with in real life because that's interesting. And that's like, that's where drama comes from. Human drama comes from people being imperfect. (laughs) Um, And so like a character being sort of morally corrupt, I will stand by forever. But I think that like, the hard thing to figure out and the thing that you always have to learn on is like, okay, but I can have this person do something, but what am I saying about it as the author? And what is the audience going to walk away from with it? And and is that going to perpetuate harm in some way? And I think that like, that's something that I, I, I hope people walk into my work with of like, okay, I'm pretty certain that I'm not going to be harmed in this space. And like, I, you know, I think that like, I never... I would say that like as a consumer of media, you should never feel fully safe. Like you should never completely let your guard down with any media because people are going to make mistakes. And because like, that's just, you know, I have done that with media and then, and then been really, really let down. Um, Like, I think the thing that jumps to mind most, most clearly is like, you know, consuming a queer piece of media and being like, great. Like I can just sit back and, and watch this. And like, it's made by queer people. It's about queer people. Oh, wow. It got very biphobic very quickly. And all of a sudden it's not a safe space for me anymore. And so it's like, you know, you can, you can sort of think that these spaces are safe and, and they're not. And like, ultimately, you know, as consumers of media, we are responsible for our own consumption. But I, I, I like to think that people can kind of like let their guards down a little bit and let that comfort food kind of wash over them. You know, it's like, you're not going to be freaked out. You're not going to be, you know, like maybe I'll make you cry. Like that's something I know I do a lot, but like, it's going to, it's all going to be okay at the end. (laughs) Like I kind of want, you know, um, my work to be like a a warm blanket for people. Um, even when it's hard and even when it's sad and even when it's like dealing with very serious issues, I want people to know that like, it's all going to be okay at the end. And I think that that's something that like, you know, I, I think it's something I've accomplished because I'll get emails or like, you know, mentions from people around like, yeah, like this thing is my comfort listening. And it's like a very, very sad episode of the Bright <laughs> Sessions or something. And it's like, oh, yeah, I kind of get that because like there are certain mm-hmm. things that I'll watch and that I'll listen to or read where it's like, oh, I'm going to I want to like kind of sit in this in this sad or dark feeling, but it's not going to drag me under. That was a very yeah. long-winded answer, and I'm not entirely sure I answered the question. But like, <laughs> no, I want to be great. a warm blanket, I guess. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I love that. And like you were saying, with the whole like plot versus character forward kind of thing too, uh, I always tell people that it's very, very difficult to like actively spoil any of your work because so much of it's not about the plot; it's about the feelings yeah. you get from it. It's about the character growth over time. You can't just that. sit down and in five seconds spoil a character growth and how it makes you feel. Totally. Oh, I love that. I love being having having unspoilable work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, okay, Lauren. So one of the ways I always like to close out these interviews is just asking you, what is one thing you're excited about right now? Mm. Um, well, yeah, I just moved to Seattle and I'm very excited to explore um, explore this new city. Um, I mean, I've spent I spent time here, but I you know haven't lived here until very recently. And uh, on the like work side. I am very excited for this uh, Stranger Things podcast that comes out on Tuesday as of this recording. So by the time people hear this, it will, it might be out in its entirety. Um, <laughs> and I also, I am, I am genuinely really, really excited for some faraway place to come out. I think that there's always like, I say that like, I, you know, like it's a surprise, but like there's always a degree of, of sort of trepidation and like nervousness around releasing sure. a book. And I think this is the first time that I'm going into a book release feeling like kind of confident. <laughs> um, and it's because like some faraway places, 
very different from the other two books. And it was like so emotionally taxing to write, but in kind of like a satisfying way. Um, and so I'm just really, I'm really excited for it to exist out in the world so that like I can talk to people about it. Um, and yeah, it's, 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 it's not, not the happiest book in the world, but like, I, I'm, I'm excited for people to, to react to it. Um, and just excited to like, I don't know, have it out there. Yeah, and I'm definitely looking forward to being able to chuck it at more than just my blogger friends who can get early access <laughs> yes, to please. it. Yes, <laughs> please. Um, yeah, so I think that's everything I have for you today, Lauren. Uh, thank awesome. you so much for coming on the podcast. This was absolutely lovely. Thanks so much for having me. And I feel like the appropriate way to close out is just saying stay strange. Stay strange. You can find Lauren Shippen on Twitter and Instagram as Lauren Shippen or at her website, laurenshippen.com. If you're in the mood for character-driven, found family stories that feel like snuggling under a cozy blanket while still tackling tough topics, you can never go wrong with a Bright Session story. As always, you can find us over at thefantasyin.com or click the invite in the show notes to join our Discord server. If you enjoyed this interview, consider supporting us on Patreon or take a minute of your time to leave us a review online. It really means the world. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you can catch all of our future episodes. That's all for this week. Until next time.